John's first letter, chapter 4, and starting at verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. We know that we live in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit, and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the saviour of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and he in God. And so we know and rely on the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world, we are like him. There's no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Thank you, Rosie. Now I'll ask Alan, please, to come and uh, encourage us. Thank you, Alan. I suppose I want to share with you this morning something not just that you know, but something that you experience. You know, so often we read the words of Jesus and we know them, we understand them, we believe them, but are they part of your experience and my experience? For instance, Jesus said, I am with you always. Yes, we all accept that. Yes, I believe it. I read it. I understand it. Do you actually feel it? Do you actually know it day by day, whether you're in the office, at school, at work, at the kitchen sink? Jesus is with me now. He's with me always. Well, if you're like me, the answer is really no. I'm not aware that Jesus is actually with me all the time. And yet that's what he says. And in Hebrews it goes a bit further and it extends it slightly because it refers to God and I presume to Jesus. And he says, be content because I will never leave you or forsake you. And that has that feeling, doesn't it? That somehow I'm going to, God is going to be with me in all sorts of circumstances, in all sorts of places. And he's saying, it's all right. Just be content.
pretend. It, it, it's okay because I'm with you. I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to forsake you. I'm going to stay with you. Jesus is going to stay with us to the end of the age. And when you think back to Psalm 139, when David thinks about God being in our lives, you either get, like David, I think a bit terrified on occasion. When we think about David, think about, does God really know what I'm thinking in my mind before I actually put it into a sentence and actually speak it? If I try and run away from him, I always think David thinks he'll travel with the speed of light and get there. And when he gets there, God's sitting on the rock saying, what kept you, David? You know, and, and it's that feeling, isn't it, that God is really there in all the intimate things. He really is present. And I want to take our first hymn now. And I, don't, I think I'm going to ask you to sit because so often, you know, we sing a hymn, we stand up, we open up books, we sing it, we sing the words and we sit down again. And we put the hymn down. I don't want you to do that because this is, is 165 and I've chosen it because I want you to think what's going on in this, uh, this hymn. I don't think there could be a situation in this hymn which hasn't at some point hit all of us. And it simply goes through all sorts of things. And it says, for all these things, I have Jesus. And I want you to think, as you go through this thing, really think about what's going on and thinking, in what way do I have Jesus? What does that really mean to me when I reach some of these things? And the writer says, I have Jesus. I I believe, I can't remember, Mike Hardy told me once, it was a vicar in the Lake District who, when people had problems, used to stick this little leaflet and say, for this I have Jesus. Well, it doesn't matter whether that's right or not. I may have got it wrong. But it's the fact that in these instances, I have Jesus. So I'm asking you just to sit so that you, you actually think about what you're actually seeing. Right. 165 in Praise the Lord. As you went through some of those experiences, did you think, in what way do I have Jesus? When I think back to those things, what did it mean, I have Jesus? What what, what impact did it have on that situation where the the nights were spent without sleep, or when there was worry, or when you were elated? Was Jesus part of it? And if he was, what was that sort of part now, Jesus is straightforward when we read in John's Gospel and he talks about the vine. He doesn't say, you, you, you need me. He said, without me, you can't do anything. Now, Jesus seems to be quite brutal sometimes, and yet he's absolutely right, isn't he? When he says to us, look, I'm the vine, you're the branches, he said. You know, if you try on your own, let me tell you where you end up. You'll end up on the bonfire. I always read those words. In the village where we lived, Matt Biggs used to live just around the corner. Matt used to say to me, oh, old plant, oh, just put it on the compost heap. Recycle it, Alan. That's what you're doing, recycling. And Jesus says, you're not even being recycled. You're going on the bonfire. You're going to be burnt. That's how far you'll get without me. But with me, you'll bear much fruit. Things will happen. You'll flourish, you'll grow, you'll bear fruit. Things will happen. So stay with me, Jesus saying, because you need me. So, what's this living with Jesus really like? 
When Paul was writing his second letter to the Corinthians, he says some wonderful things in this letter. He says to us, For God who said that light shine out of darkness, an extraordinary thing it seems to me that Jesus, that what Paul is going to talk about, but he goes back, he goes back to the time before the earth is formed, when it's without, has, has no humanity, no nothing, it's not even there. And he says, he says, let there be light. And what's he talking about? He's not talking about light, literally. Although light comes, he's not talking about the sun, moon and stars. What he's talking about, he says, this God who said, let there be light, he said, he made the light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. This is what he was doing long before creation started. And he's letting the light of his love, of his grace, of his glory shine in the face of Jesus. I said, it's a wonderful thing, isn't it? That's what you've got. You look to Jesus and there you see my glory. I presume it's a glory that Moses was looking for. All God's, God's mercy, his compassion, his love, his grace, his forgiveness, his, all those things were shining in the face of Jesus. And he said, you know what? It's a, tre- it's a treasure. You've got to truly treasure it. But he says, you've got it in jars of clay. To show this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Isn't that extraordinary? God is saying, I've allowed this to shine in your heart. I know what you are. He said, you're a pot of clay. He said, but you realise that you're a pot of clay to, to understand that the, this power, this all-surpassing power is from God. It's not yours. And I've made this shine in your heart that you perceive my glory. And this is a power in your life. In my life, even though you're only a clay pot. That's extraordinary, isn't it? Now, I like the fact that God says, Alan, I know you're just a clay pot. I'm very aware that you're just a clay pot. So what's it actually like being a clay pot, living with this extraordinary treasure and having God in my life? I want to go back just to one instant because it seems to me the word glory, actually thinking, it's an extraordinary word, isn't it? What, what is this glory? I know Moses is saying he's seen things like compassion. The cooking's going off again by the sound of it. Um, all these things. What's it like? I want to just look at one instant. And it's an instant of, of, of Jesus. And, and it's of one of Jesus' healings. And the people brought to him, that's to Jesus, a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged him to place his hand on the man. We want you to form a miracle. And you'd think, it's, you'd think the glory of God is this miracle, isn't it? This man's going to be able to see, he's going to be here, he's going to be able to talk properly. But I want to look at what's going on. Because it seems to me this is where the glory of Jesus really touches us as human beings, as clay pots. He's touching the very things that all sort of afflict us all in various ways. 
because he took the man aside away from the crowd. Why? Well, there weren't any NHS hearing aids in those days. There were no little knobs you could twiddle to cut out the background noise. There was nothing like that. And the worst thing when you're hard of hearing is the babble of a crowded room. That's why you've got a little thing that cuts up the background noise. And Jesus knows that. And he says to the man, we'll get away from the crowd, shall we? We'll go on to one side. We'll go away where it's quiet, where we can actually be together, where we can talk. And having got the man to one side, he still doesn't do anything. I mean, he could have just laid the hands on the man and the man would have been cured. But he doesn't. He does some sort of sign language. This is what we're going to do. Before he actually does anything. And so he touches the man's tongue. And he touches the man's ears. And then he says, Ephatha, which means be opened. And the man's mind's will open. Now just think about it. This is the son of God here. Who could very easily have just laid his hands on the man and cured him. But he doesn't. And what, what are we actually looking at? We're looking at extraordinary consideration for somebody else's condition of being, not being able to hear properly. We're looking at sensitivity to be able to take somebody apart to understand that, you know, to just change somebody's life like that can be difficult. So he's trying to lead the man, the sensitivity of Jesus. And as we go through the Gospels, we see Jesus' ability to share the understanding of bereavement and understand what that's like, the human form of bereavement. He's approachable. Even if you're a leper and you can't approach anybody else, there's one person you can approach and say, can you help me? And that's Jesus. You know, it's so good having compassion if you're unapproachable. And he's available. He's there. And he doesn't bear a grudge. Even if you're one of the leaders in the synagogue that told him a week ago to get out, and suddenly your daughter's in and you say, please, could you come? And Jesus says, come. So he doesn't bear any grudge. And he listens. It seems to me, looking at the face of Jesus, we see a glory which really touches our humanity, that knows I'm a clay pot that knows I need all those qualities. Yes, he can perform miracles. He can raise me to life. But he needs, I need to know he'll listen. I need to know he's approachable. I need to know he's sensitive. I need to know he understands. I'm only a clay pot, Jesus. I know, says Jesus. And he stays with me. So what do we expect in this life with this Lord who understands me? Who is approachable? What sort of life is it going to be like? Is it going to be all very wonderful? Well, of course, Paul, when he's writing in that um, letter, he goes on to say, but this is what, we, what is going to happen. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. Uh, Paul? What's changed? Do you mean to say you are still perplexed? If you're perplexed, I'm going to be perplexed. 
persecuted, abandoned, struck down. Looking from the outside, absolutely nothing, it seems to me, in Paul's life has actually changed. And yet he says, everything has changed. For these I have Jesus, he's saying. For all these situations, and they change them. They change them that when there are things that are, are, when I'm hard pressed, I'm not crushed. Because Jesus is saying, I'll never leave you or forsake you, Paul. I'm with you. When I seem to be perplexed, I'm not plunged into despair because I have Jesus. When I'm struck down, I'm not totally destroyed because I have a Lord who understands, who has compassion, who knows me and understands me and says, I'm never going to leave you. I'm going to stay with you to the end of the age. That's what it's like. And Paul, of course, experiences that. You remember when later in that uh, second letter to Corinthians, he talks about his thorn of the flesh. It really doesn't matter what that is. It's a problem. It's a problem for which he's prayed to Jesus three times. And he says, please, it'd be very nice if you could take it away. You know, you can imagine, just think what I could do if I hadn't got this problem. And Jesus said, my grace is sufficient for you. My my, My power is made perfect in weakness. And he asked that God's Christ's power would rest upon him, would tabernacle with him. And again, it's one of those verses, isn't it? You imagine, if you can, embroidering it and hanging it on the wall. But what does it mean? What does it mean that his grace is sufficient? He's saying it's enough. And obviously here, grace, I mean, partway through John and Sylvia's book, but grace is huge, it seems to me. It embodies the glory of God. And that's what you've got, says Paul. And Jesus says to Paul, it's okay. Whatever the problem is, it's staying. It's not going away. Because my grace is sufficient for you. And in your weakness, I am made strong. I want to think about that. I'm going to ask you to have sing another hymn. Because it's one that um, Margaret Green and... Um, Andrew DeWitt obviously thought they wanted to put together. And it's just, again, you know, just to think about it. Again, it's one of those, those things that we say, we sing. I want you to, to just ponder it because this isn't about knowing. It's about feeling. It's about internalizing, to really knowing that this is what I believe. This is what I feel, that when I'm in a situation, God's grace is sufficient, that that Jesus is made powerful when I am weak, that I am a clay pot. And the reason I'm a clay pot is the unsurpassing power is not mine, it's God's. It's Christ's grace which is sufficient for me. So just remain seated because you better think about this as you're seeing it. My grace is sufficient for me. Your power is made perfect in weakness. So that when you want these things, you remember that God's grace, that the grace of Jesus is sufficient. 
and he's never going to leave you or forsake you. So let's sing. It's 299 in praise the Lord. In that reading, John summed it up, didn't he? When I live in love, I live in God, and God lives in me. They're not going anywhere, are they? And so, this is about building a relationship, about living together, being dependent on this Lord, in whose face I see the glory of God. And we're going to come to a meal soon. I don't wonder what this meal is about. We do see it, I think, of a meal of remembrance. But it's a meal. It's food. It's food that, when you think about it, is emotional. Somebody gives you food and you take it in trusting them. You take it in, you make it part of yourself. You eat it, you live off it. It's part of you, it's inside you. It's not something external, it's something you literally take in. And Jesus was saying, this is my body, this is my blood. And what about transubstantiation of any of those things? It's about Jesus saying, take me in, eat me, make me part of you, let me live in you. Because you need me. And that's what we're coming to, isn't it? It's not necessarily about uh, um, a last supper. It's not really about um, a prescribed ritual. The, you know, the meeting together to do it is wonderful. Because the disciples would have had this, this food every day. And every day Jesus would be nudging them and saying, remember me, I'm with you. I'm not leaving you, I'm in part of your daily life. It's a meal in which there were discussions, or more rightly arguments. Yes, they were about the kingdom, but there was hot discussion going on within this meal. It didn't seem strange that Judas was getting up and leaving the meal to go and give something to the poor. That was part of the meal. It was discussion, all sorts of things were going on. It seems to me what's extraordinary, when then John comes to look at this meal, he doesn't talk about bread and wine. He talks about what's going on, because what is going on is what these things mean. What this bread and wine actually means is what's going on in this particular meal. And it's an extraordinary meal, isn't it, brethren and sisters? John starts by telling us that... um, Jesus had all power. Jesus knew that the Father had put all power, all things under his power. That he'd come from God and was returning to God. Just think, as we look around the world, how people use power to subjugate, to gain what they want. And Jesus has all power. God has given all power to Jesus. This is a powerful Lord, brothers and sisters. This is somebody to whom God is saying, you have all power, all things are under you. And what does Jesus do with this power, brothers and sisters? What does he do, this powerful man who has all power, what does he do? He took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his feet. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that he wrapped around him. Just think of it, 
brothers and sisters. This all-powerful Lord kneels before you and washes your feet. And you can well understand Peter saying, no, not me, Lord, not me. And Jesus says, yes, Peter, because unless I do this, you have no part with me. This is a powerful son of God in whose face shines the glory of God. And he washes your feet. And so he goes on and thinks he's going to his crucifixion. He's going to his crucifixion. And often we think about the pain, the sorrow, the, all the, the, the agony of the crucifixion. And that's not what Jesus says here, is it? Jesus says, when you look at that crucifixion, you behold the glory of God. You look to my face and you perceive in it the glory of God. All of God's love, his compassion, his grace, his forgiveness, his wanting to be with you, his wanting to have a relationship, it's all poured into that one thing to say, how far can I go to tell you how much I love you? This is my glory, says Jesus. In this you perceive the glory of God. And it seems the right moment for Jesus to say, a new commandment I give you. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And having come to that experience of what Jesus has done, you realise that love is not an easy option. It dominates one's life. It's having taken Jesus into one to reveal that all-surpassing power is not of me, it's of God. That the light of God has shone in me to see the glory of God. To say this is what living with Jesus is. This is what having a relationship with God and Jesus is about. That I reflect what they have done for me. And when we've seen a Lord kneel before us and go to the cross and say this is the glory we realise that loving one another is difficult. And Jesus says, I know it's difficult. And so he says to them, let not your hearts be troubled. Be content, he says, trust me. Trust in God, trust in me. Trust me, says Jesus. I know you're a clay pot, I know you find it difficult, I know you'll find it hard, but just trust me, I am not going away. God is not going away. Trust me, I am staying with you to the end of the age. I'm going to remain with you at all times. And then he goes further than that, it seems to me. Because then he starts to talk about, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whatever home is, it's the place where I'm me, Alan Proctor. And all the bits and pieces that Mary knows I am. Good, bad, indifferent, awkward. All those sorts of things. And Jesus says, that's where we're going to live. The bit that's really you is where we're going to make our home. 
Not the face you put on as you face the world, but the real you. And isn't that a comfort? I know you're a clay pot, but that's what I want to be. I want to live in the clay pot. I want to be with that. That's what I'm going to be. God and I are going to come make our home with you. We're going to stay with you right to the end. We're never going to leave you. Yes, there were difficulties, but I'm there. Yes, I understand all the physical things that go on in your life. All the things that that you find difficult. I know of all those. But I know those. And so he talks about what we're going to think about in this meal, amongst other things. He says that I have loved you. Greater love hath no one than this, that he lay down for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer called you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends for everything that I've learned from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appoint you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Yes, fruit that will last. If you do whatever I command. And so we come to this meal. It's a simple meal of bread and wine. Something of every day. Something which speaks to us of the glory of God. Something which we can look and see in the face of Jesus the glory of God, that compassion, that love, that grace, all those things that we need. It speaks of oneness, a body given, of fellowship, of God and Jesus being at home with us, living with us as we are. It speaks of poured out love, of compassion in all of our life. It speaks of a whole life poured out, not just on the cross, but day by day meeting with people. Perhaps what John said in that reading. That if you love, you live in God. And God lives in you. And this is a meal in which we take in what they represent. Because we want a relationship. In the end we want to live with God and Jesus forever. We want that time when the shout will go up and it's glorious. The dwelling of God is with men. He's there. He's living with us. And that's what's going on now. Jesus said, it's not just about the future. It's about the present. If you love, my father and I will come and make our home with you. And so this is not just a feast. It's a love feast, which we're going to share together. Am I allowed to have praise the Lord 65 now? Right. I've chosen this because to think about what's going on. That Jesus is here. As we started out, as Andrew started out, um, that God and Jesus are amongst us. They're glorious. Stand among us, Jesus. At the meeting of our lives, our fellowship with each other, be there. Show us what you are. Let us see your glory. Let us reveal that glory as, as we meet together. At the meeting of our eyes, as we look at Jesus, as we share with each other those things, let us remember whose we are and what relationship we have with Jesus. And of course, as in the last verse, Jesus sang among us at the breaking of the bread. Join us as one body as we worship you, our head. Oh, Jesus, we love you. And so we gather here. Join our hearts in unity and take away our fear. Take away our fear of not understanding, of not being able to do it. Take it away. Because you want to be with us.
and you're not going to leave us. I'll be with you to the end of the age, said Jesus. Jesus.